Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith With podcast. Now, the with part implies that there is a guest involved, obviously. And those guests are some of the greatest musicians of all time. Legends, up-and-comers, actors who make music, and everything in between. With three new interviews every week on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, it's a great way to keep up with all of your favorite artists, discover some new ones, and know what's happening in the music world. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, YouTube, or wherever you like to get podcasts from. Consequence Podcast Network. Support for this season of Assembly comes from the Improv Asylum in Boston, Massachusetts, and New York, New York. Consequence of Sound in Chicago, Illinois, and New York, New York. And Catherine Beckett in Brooklyn, New York. If you'd like to support Assembly, visit our website, www.theassemblypodcast.com, or you can email me directly, theassemblypodcast at gmail.com. Oh, we're about to start. Here we go. School of Film presents Assembly, a look at what brings us together in parts. My name is Robert Malazzo, and I'll bring you what I see, what I hear, and what I learn. Now, let's start the Assembly.
We're almost at the end of our assembly with David Cross, which is really just the start of David's assembly. That's assuming David chooses to leave the Brooklyn basement. Not his Brooklyn basement per se, though one never assumes, but the basement I'll visit David in at Union Hall to see him live write his new stand-up material. On my way to meet David today, I've been thinking about all the trials I've looked at this week. Uh, Biological, cultural, artistic, domestic, Each one commands its own lifetime, let alone a seven-day assembly. Long subway ride short, I've been trying to think of the one commonality for all of these trials, David's trials, and I keep coming back to the one that I think runs through all of the others, but it's the one we have the most control over. And that trial, that test, is me versus me. So on today's part of the assembly, I want to drill down on arguably the most sensitive part of this me versus me. It's the part David accepted when he chose a public job such as artist or actor, or in this case, stand-up comic. But you don't have to live in the limelight to work out this me versus me. It's a part we all face. And that part, this part, is feedback. I think feedback is the tip of a funnel. It's like exhaust from a car that's been revving a long time. Some need that release. Some avoid it. Some loathe its occasional necessity. Some are destroyed by it. I've learned, though, no matter its intent, it's how we respond to the feedback or the commentary or the criticism that says more about us than about the thing itself, the me versus me of it all. And that's the beautiful thing. It all comes down to me, or you, or David, and what he's built before the feedback he'll be getting in a few nights. Which reminds me, I also want to connect with a few of the comics who'll be sharing the bill with David during his live writing or workshop or gig or shit shooting. Folks, no doubt, working out their own me versus me's. Or is it me's versus me? Hmm. Feedback. Immunity is possible, though no one is immune. Not this week. Here's part four of the assembly. Is that who I am? How was the last couple of days? Um, oh, fine. Just recovering. Yeah. Yeah. You know. You still have to take... um, Oh, yeah, yeah. You're supposed to take it until the thing's done, which I think is a week. But I, as I said, I'm not going to take that gabapentin prior. I'll, I'll stop at the next one, which will be in an hour, and that'll be my last one for the day. I'll definitely be tired, but my adrenaline, adrenaline, will, my adrenaline will kick in, and I'll be uh, ready to go and and just doing it. You know. Did uh, you and Amber ever talk about? Hey, is this the right timing? Could we reschedule? Did you guys ever, like as a family? I booked these shows way before the surgery was was uh, booked, you know? And she's the one who kept kind of moving it uh, up a bit um, because of various things we had going on with the apartment and stuff. And um, and then I also on the calendar was like, okay, this I'll be four days or remo- uh, three days removed from the surgery, so I should be okay. And also the adrenaline of just just doing it, you know? Uh, it's been almost a year, almost a calendar year that I've not been able to see. And, uh, and it's really, 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 really frustrating. And, and I just was like, I'm getting it done. I'm doing it. Enough's enough. I'm just doing it. And we'll figure it out, you know. You're the Brett Favre of stand-up. <laughs> you don't miss sets. I think I've maybe canceled two shows in my life, you know. I've been, but if, even if I'm really pretty sick, I go down, I do it, and I do as well as I can, give 100%, and and bring it. I have to be really sick or something has to be very wrong for me to cancel. And a lot of people are plan their day or their week around it. There are some people traveling and getting babysitters and stuff. And I, I, I want to 
honor that, you know? And it's also, I enjoy it. I really enjoy it. What else have you suffered through? Like, you haven't been laying dormant for a year. I haven't been doing much at all. Is it because of the physiology, because of your eyes? No, 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 no. I'm, you know, the nature of this work is that if you have an idea, you develop it, you find people who are interested in it, and then you go pitch it. I hadn't had that idea come to me. I'd been working on a couple different things, but I didn't feel they were anywhere near ready to go out and pitch. I got a, a call about about somebody who was interested, something they approached me with, like, hey, we think you'd be great to develop this show. This person was a, was a clearly very knowledgeable fan of mine, like new Todd Margaret Inside and Out, new Bliss Inside and Out, uh, new hits, and was referencing things I'd even forgotten about. So those things I've been working on, but that, that's a long time in between stuff, and that's why I started booking these shows, because why not? Does that draw you to something or away from something when someone knows your work really well? Oh, it draws me to them. I mean, I, I deal with, I'd say, 80% of my fans. I don't know, I'm pulling that number out of my ass, but like roughly 80% of my fans, quote, uh, unquote, uh, are fans, but they're fans of work that I just don't care that much about. But there are a handful of people, and I can tell, you know, when they when they do mention like series three of Tar Margaret or Bliss or Hits or the or, or you know some stand up I did, some some more uh, obscure stuff I've done, then I know, that, and then I'm I'm kind of more more apt to engage. Really, it's authentic at that point. Yeah, it's it's the stuff that I like. So there's something to talk about, too. It's just about them giving you some space and also picking up on obvious signs, signs that one would think are obvious. And, and unfortunately, have friend, I was in uh, Las Vegas with my friend Mark Rivers, and he goes, and I was just being approached constantly, and he said, you know, either you need to get a lot less famous or a lot more famous so that people <laughs> leave you alone. But, I, you know, I'm in that middle range where people yeah. feel very comfortable um, and I don't look, I don't mind at all people. And, and, and let me preface this by saying most people are totally cool and get it. I mean, 99%, but there's 1% that aren't, won't leave you alone. Sometimes you're on the phone. Literally, I'll be on the phone having a f- conversation on the phone and people are trying to go, yo, yo. And then they act upset when I'm not engaging with them. I've been crying on the street. I've been crying and people have talked to me, tried to talk to me. I've been, uh, you know, recent, more recently with my daughter who's like, I'm holding her and they're like, trying to get me to take a picture. I'm like, dude. But again, that's really 1%. Oh. Uh, I gotta take my medicine, which I don't have on me. Okay. Before we let you stumble out of here, do you know the other comics who are on the show Friday? I don't know who's on Friday night. I probably won't know till Friday morning, but that's great. I'll be able to see some and be introduced to new good comics, which is one of the best things about this. Is it that you don't want to know who's on the bill? It, It has no bearing on anything. No outside influence can have any effect on the show. It doesn't matter. It's all good. It's just another show. I think you're you're putting more importance on this than I am. The show. Uh, and maybe even the process. I'm, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> okay. you know, do you think there's a kid in Montana, David, that is like, wow, that is kind of interesting? Uh, sure. Yeah. You know, because I, I always in the back of my mind is this idea, much like myself, when I was a kid and I went to see Steve Martin when I was 15, there's a kid out there and this is his first 
or her first comedy show and I'm doing it for them up in the balcony in the dark and they saved their money and they went so it's about that kid even if people in the front I can see them with their arms folded and hate me I'm going to do it for that person I can't see that I'm assuming is out there but only in Montana only in Montana What's your name and what do you do? Um, I'm Julia Clare. I'm a comedian, a stand-up comedian and comedian. <laughs> I love being intro to such just to make sure you know I'm a woman. Um, Where are you from originally? I am from a suburb of Boston, Massachusetts. Um, I'm Wilfred Paddle and I'm a stand-up comedian. With the climate now, like there's so many things that are like you have to be on, either on the right side or the wrong side of history. With people like David, and I, I would put myself in like the way that I write material is like I don't want to just say the right thing. I want to say something, the funny thing, and uh, and often that isn't the wokest thing to say. I had to leave the city because I knew I wasn't going to be the kind of comic that Seattle wanted. I'm from Seattle. It's just like, I got to go to a city where I feel like I'm going to grow and I feel like I can be appreciated, which was New York. We love it here. <laughs> when did you first hear of David Cross? Have you heard of <laughs> Would you like me to introduce you? I have very much heard of heard of David Cross. Um, when did I first, I think I saw him before I heard of him or conceptually like knew who he was. I obviously like Arrested Development. I was a little too, too young for Mr. Show, right? Yeah, I think I was, I was a little too, because it's like the same thing. I was only introduced to Bob Odenkirk through Breaking Bad. So yeah, I mean, he's just been He's just kind of been like a fixture. I don't want to say I don't remember a time not knowing him, but it's just like, you know, I, it's just like, yeah, that's, that's him. <laughs> Do you feel like, oh, I'm, the spotlight is a little different tonight? I mean, well, someone like David, I think it's more they like, he's someone I've never met. That makes me a little bit more nervous, but I think that I'm a very like competent stand-up and I think it behooves me to just like be confident and do my jokes and do what I know how to do. Um, and usually that like generally works out for me. One of the things that I had to learn about myself is I belong amongst these people. Not that I, I'm as good as them or that like I deserve their fame or whatever, but like when I'm on stage, it's my time and I should do it to my best ability. Uh, ability. I shouldn't try to just mimic my uh, my heroes uh, now that I'm on shows with them. I should do my own thing. And it's gonna, uh, like, my own voice is strong in its own. And that's how I got here. Delusion plays a huge role in, in doing this because the market is so saturated for comedians and, like, the statistical likelihood that any of us are gonna have a, a huge career is low. Wow, that was uplifting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have a drink <laughs> you know i'm a i'm a realist um you know addicted to shame and punishment even like doing badly in my early years was felt like productive the duality of that and also just massive egos which everybody also has so it's like yeah you're self-deprecating but you're controlling the story about you because you know it's funny that's why we all do this because we think that like we're the one who should be doing this. Um, and don't you find me fascinating? Yeah. Yeah. I don't find me fascinating personally, but like, oh my God, my voice is so dumb and my body is stupid. And <laughs> yeah, it's a very uplifting art form. Uh, the sickness was that it just like was at the expense of other parts of my life. I only wanted to do stand up. I like missed functions to do it. 
by any uh, clinical definition, it was a thing that was interfering with my everyday life. (laughs) I was like writing at work and just constantly trying to think of new things. Do you have another job? Yes, I do. I have two part-time jobs. What are your jobs? I work retail and I also work as a mover. Do you describe that a lot in your life? I mean, do you have to sort of say, don't tell anybody in the comic world, I do these other things? There is for sure like a little bit of shame that I had for a second, but then it makes it easier that I'm around comics that also have day jobs, that like that are great comics. That makes it easier because there is context. I feel like New York is a, con- is a city where everyone is working really hard to just fund what they want to do. And it makes sense here. If I w- go back to Seattle, like... They don't understand how hard it is to do this. Uh, the comics there think that you go to New York and you and you're if you didn't break, then you're you're not going to make it, you know. Uh, and so there's a little bit of embarrassment that like comes with that when I'm outside of the city. But New York, it's like everyone everyone's working too hard, never sleeping, and it's it is what it is. That's what life is here. Are you getting paid enough as a comic? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, I in the city of New York, you're you're mostly doing free shows. I'm not making money off of any, most of these shows. There's also, I'm like working at clubs and just to get on stage. I know that they're paying other people on the show, but I'll do it for free because I just want to get on stage. I need to get better. I need to work on these jokes. How often do you do sets a week, like ballpark? Oh, probably 10 a week. Wow. Sometimes that's not enough. Well, like 10 is like, uh, is ideal. I've been here a year. I'm still like trying to get acclimated to this giant comedy scene like i still need my name to get out there to people uh so when an opportunity does arise i want to be prepared for it i don't want to have like not been on stage for a week uh because i you know i was being lazy or being like uh self-righteous about how much i'm getting paid unless you come from like intergenerational wealth you have to work a nine to, or not a nine to five but you have to work a job to live here Um, It's kind of the days of like the starving artist in New York who can just like scrape by on or over. You have to work like a real some semblance of like a real job to survive here. If I meet someone who's like at my level who doesn't have a job, I'm like, oh, you come from money and I respect you less. (laughs) I'm going to rat you out, but not. We're meeting on your lunch hour. Yeah. What's your other job? I don't know if I should talk about that. I'm a university administrator. Was there ever like, no, this isn't a career, Sarah? No, no. They they always, um, I think because I was always, I mean, I know this is imagined, but like I just was always funny. It just was always just was. They saw, it's not like I didn't have a work ethic. Like I did stand up every night. I went to NYU for one year and I went to class in the day and then from 4 p.m. to 2 a.m. I passed out flyers for the Boston Comedy Club. It was the first time I was having trouble staying awake during class and I've always was a good student and it was horrifying. I like pinch myself awake. What did the parents think? What did dad think? He said if I wanted to, if I quit college, he would pay my rent the next three years as if it's my sophomore, junior, senior year, which is like a real good deal for both of us, you know, and I would continue to pursue stand up, And that's what I did. It's just all I did. I didn't want to do anything else, you know, so 
it's such a, I, I digress so much, but it's funny because so many comics have story of passing up flyers for the Boston Comedy Club, like around my era, you know, and, and um, maybe 10 years ago, I was at a party and I saw that actor, um, Oliphant, Timothy Oliphant. Yeah. And I'm such a fan. So I go, I went up to him. I said, hey, I just wanted to say I'm a, such a big fan. And he's like, Sarah. And I go, yeah, yeah. And he goes, you don't remember me? I go, well, I'm a big fan of, of your acting. He goes, I was the Barker at Boston when you passed out flyers. <laughs> like, wow. what? You're Tim? <laughs> like, he had a parted down the middle, like, um, page boy haircut. And he just looked stoned. And I, I honestly remember thinking, this guy's going nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> Those razor sharp instincts of yours. <laughs> Is that, I know, I have terrible instincts. Well, I suppose that everything's connected. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. You also are, are taking your family down with you, too. What do they think? Your mom and dad or whoever's in the picture? My parents are pretty supportive. My dad is really supportive. Uh, my mom doesn't like that I swear on stage. Uh, and she definitely doesn't like the content that I talk about. I have three brothers and a little sister. None of them see, have seen me do stand-up. I think they just see it as a job. Like, my parents don't know who... David Cross is. You still got to know comedy to know David Cross and to be a real fan of his. They don't really get it. And I guess I also haven't really tried to explain it to them. They just didn't get it at first. I'm lucky in the sense that, like, I did not grow up in a household where the prevailing wisdom was that, like, women aren't funny, which I know from, like, being friends with a lot of other male, female comics is something that some people experience even though like my dad is someone who like i make him laugh every day but he like he literally would say i just don't think of you as funny <laughs> and i was like okay what it was probably only like last year when i opened for ron funches at the wilbur and and my parents were there in front of like 1500 people that i think they like got it a little bit more because that is a place that they have gone to see comedy so the fact that I was doing a show there was like a big deal for them but my mom was like I was just so nervous for you <laughs> they're never gonna be like an objective good audience for me and I know like my dad never says anything positive to me directly but I've heard from other people that he brags about me sometimes so um and that he will read my credits to his friends, which is very nice, but I wish that he would say something nice to me. <laughs> Has your dad ever said, I'm proud of you? Oh, God, yes. Here's what I think the reason I also uh, sought out doing stand-up or something. My parents acted like I hung the moon. There is no story in my past, I can tell you. There's no sad clown. There's no, nobody touched me. Nobody, none of that. <laughs> I would say, if anything, because I've tried to think about it, if anything, uh, it's because uh, my parents just adored us. And, of course, you don't find that from your peers and other people, quite rightly. You know, why would they? Um, and I feel like I'm always like, maybe I can find some people or something that uh, seem to think that I'm as great as my parents always did. Uh, That's a high bar. My mom would have been thrilled. She loved comedy, loved it too. And uh, she also was a bit of a ham bone. Uh, I mean, she was very shy, but also a, kind of a comedy ham bone. And, the, and I am... Nothing if not a ham bone. <laughs> it's, and it, it's, it, it just was something that I, I think my father sort of just had to accept. He just was thrilled that I 
was no longer having a day job because it made me happy, so therefore he was happy. Now I have luckily been able to pay him back for because uh, of guilt, my college education. Now it wasn't as expensive back when I went, but I always felt like I owed him the money for the education I squandered and then some. I did do that. Now I certainly owe him way more emotionally and monetarily for all the support he's given me over the years. But I felt like if I could just accomplish that, um, I would I would feel a bit less guilty. My name is Janine Garofalo. I am a stand-up comic. What is the line? When do you know you're not just a funny guy, you're a stand-up comic? Oh, I don't know. I, I feel like you. I've questioned that every year that I've done comedy. Is this who I am? Am I allowed to be amongst these people that I really respect? Once uh, at my job, J.B. Smoove walked in, and I was like... The, uh, don't tell him you're a comic. <laughs> Just don't, because I don't want to be the comic who's a, who like the guy who like thinks he's a comedian but uh, isn't really because he's just doing you know he's some guy doing retail. You inspired the last question. Are you proud of yourself? Yeah, I think I am. Well, I mean, you know that comes and goes because uh, uh, it's all about the the jokes that I'm producing and how well I'm doing on stage. So sometimes I'm proud of myself, sometimes I'm not, and it really just uh, it depends on how how well my performance is going and how and if I'm continuing to grow as a as a comic. Now I feel like uh, I can define myself as a stand-up comic. Uh, strangely, and then, you know, I did. I've been doing this for almost nine years now. It took me up until maybe five months ago to be like, yes, I'm one of them. Do you want to get discovered from doing bills like this? I want to get discovered in any way that I can. I don't know what that means anymore. I think the the fact that I'm on this bill means that like that's a that means a lot to me. But what I think happens is just like what I've seen up close is that just like it's a slog. It's you build a reputation over time and like more and more people get to know you and then recommend you for other things. That's how a lot of this works. It's like just getting recommended for things from other people. Does character matter? Does personal character matter? It matters to me. It doesn't, it doesn't, I will tell you right now, it does not make a difference um, in terms of like whether you succeed or not. It will make a difference about whether or not people are happy to see you succeed. But, you know, there are plenty of just like garbage assholes who are very successful. A lot of times it's like they were always that way. It's just like becoming more successful gave them more of a license to openly be that way. I mean, and comedy is already like a a prolonged adolescence in so many ways, but... It's an arrested development? One would say. One could argue. Even though we're all at different places in our career, it's like David Cross wants the audience to like him as much as any of us do. And that's like a very kind of like comforting (laughs) thing to think about. Is it democracy of vulnerability? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that that's right. Is it always fun? No. <laughs> Are you excited about Friday? Yeah. Hell yeah. It's going to be so fun. Do you actually know who's on Because I don't know who's on it. Um, well, it's David. Cross. Yeah, yeah. I'll introduce you. I know. Yeah, yeah. continually fascinated and slightly in awe of how stand-up comedians are both sponge and lead suit at the same time. Everything seems to phase them, but we assume nothing phases them because we laugh 
and it's an act, right? So let's get down to cases. How does David Cross do with feedback? Something must be working because he asked for it again on this assembly. Or maybe he just likes punishment. Yes, people have always had opinions, but now they have alibis and aliases. But so does a comedian. That's the job, right? So come back for some feedback. But now this. Assembly is winding down for this season, just a couple parts left. So I want to look ahead with you to the future of Assembly, future assemblies. Assembly finds a moment in time and looks at it from all sides. Wave at it, play nice with it, get tough with it, present it, and hopefully understand it just a fraction better. And we're always looking. So if you have an assembly you'd like me to feature on a season of assembly, go to the website, www.theassemblypodcast.com, and you can suggest an assembly you'd like to see featured on the show. And the assembly can be from any corner of life or work or culture or politics or science, sports, fact, fiction, and any size. There are no small assemblies. So reach out and I'll do my best. The other thing I wanted to mention is in each season of Assembly, I've had amazing people contribute to the show, and again, both ways big and small, practical, impractical, financial, and get full credit. So if you'd like to take part in the Assembly somehow, again, go to the website, theassemblypodcast.com, email me directly, and I can give you all the details on how to get involved. The show doesn't exist and won't keep existing without you listening and without you reaching out, and there's no small gesture. And it's all really humbling. So check us out on the web and contribute if you can. Thank you. Now, back to the assembly. Who's harder on you, you or the audience? Well, I don't think I'm hard on myself. I think I'm I'm doing my job, you know, and you have to be honest. If I'm not being honest, that doesn't help anybody. Um, So I don't see it as being hard on myself. I'm just doing the critical work that needs to be done. I don't necessarily think things are ever as bad as they feel or they felt or they seemed. And I don't think things are also that as great as they seemed. Or I, I don't have the highs and the lows that other people do. A bad set is a bummer and it'll stick with you and it really will ruin your day or the next couple days until you have a good set. But I don't let it defeat me. The inverse of that, I don't let really great sets inflate my head you know I just go that was that was good I'm I'm good this is great this is fun let's go to the next show I don't come off thinking I'm Superman let's get Madison Square Garden going you know do you take criticism well as a general conceit um this is going to sound uh arrogant uh but I've never been criticized for anything that I know of I've never been on the internet uh yeah I think I do I mean it depends on first of all the source then the actual verbiage of the criticism itself. You know, somebody going like, you suck, you're a fag, <laughs> you stop talking about Trump, that I kind of dismiss. But if it's a really well thought, sometimes people misunderstand something or misunderstand or miss the intention of something, then I have to give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. Like, well, that's a bummer. They didn't understand what I was going for. I know because I, I did the show and I was there and I know, you know, 1,800 people who maybe got it. And sometimes people get it and just don't like it. You know, back in the day when I was doing Todd Margaret, that was very polarizing. Mostly people loved it or hated it. Those kind of criticism I'll take. And there are a handful of places where or people uh, where I go, they didn't like it, they got everything I was going for, they just didn't care for it. So, okay, I'll accept that criticism for sure. But 
But then there are people who just like, you know, you're condescending and you you think you're smarter than everybody or the, the smartest guy in the room. I've gotten that a number of times. And I don't think that. I mean, it may come out. Obviously, it does because I've heard that before and condescending I've heard a hundred times. So at some point, you have to go, well, I guess I am. I mean, that's certainly a perception for a lot of people. So I, I'm not sure what I can do about it, but I definitely, you know, take that criticism to heart. How often do you go on social media? How much time do you spend on it? Oh, more than I should. I uh, quite literally never on Facebook, but Instagram I'm on, but not really much. Twitter I'll go on, I mean, cumulative, I would say probably an hour a day, which isn't good. I thought you were going to say more. Maybe more. Maybe, uh, I mean, like I'll, if I'm on the subway, as opposed to reading a book or something or just thinking, and I'm, I'll get on it and that's what you know anywhere from 15 to 45 minutes when i get up in the morning i'll scroll through and just see if there's any news kind of stuff and when uh, i put my kid down for a nap usually if i'm like i'll get on just it's like kind of news update but that's justification i come up with in my mind uh which is legit but then you spend another 30 minutes on there scrolling going uh you know haha that's funny what fuck that you know but i'd be lying and I said I didn't at all. And I, as I'm saying this, I realize my hour answer is probably, I'm probably underestimating that. Although, wait, I just, that's not true. Because I was on this weekend, I was with my kid, my wife, and the dog. We were upstate, and uh, I don't think I was on much at all. And I said we don't have a TV up there, and it's really just hanging out with and playing around with the kid now. Maybe when she was younger and didn't talk, I'd be on more. But, you know, it's, it's, the magical thing about it is if you don't go online, you don't go on Twitter, uh, you're not going to hear about it. You just don't log on. Your, your life will be better. You'll be happier. Like, how do you judge the vanilla of criticism? Aren't we in a day where people just want to be critics just to be fucking critics? Yeah. I mean, but I think people by nature, you know, uh, I mean, back in the 16th century, people were critics, you know? I mean, you're just a critic. Maybe it's, it's hyper ubiquitous now but that's something i mean even as a kid i remember the like you know people have t-shirts say opinions are like assholes everyone has one i mean that that's i just know that in my life do you think the assholes are bigger and smellier now i don't know there's a sanitized fragrant floral quality to some of them like a, a like a sandalwood or a bergamot you know my name is amber tamblin and i am a um, artist writer director, all kinds of things. <laughs> I think he really loves when I really find something very, very funny, like laugh out loud, just... Um, and it's usually something you would not expect a young feminist writer to find funny. I really do like offensive stuff, and I like things that push the boundaries and might be upsetting and might not necessarily be politically correct to say. I do not mind any of that, and it's part of the reason I was drawn to him in the first place. Sometimes giving advice on like a way that I think a joke might land better, um, he takes that advice less than 1% of the time. There's a lot going on in our culture right now. Things can come off as punching down, you know, depending on what that is. And I think sometimes that's just sort of cultural. And sometimes I'll say, just cut this. It's just beneath you and it's not, it doesn't bring anything to the conversation you're trying to have. And sometimes my job is to sort of point out where I think something could be problematic. He doesn't always agree, but also oftentimes he really will be the first one to go, oh, I didn't know that. Okay, good to know. Interesting. So it's always a learning process, I think, as long as a person is open to that learning experience. 
that's what matters. He has never, in all the years we've been together, tried something out in person. I've tried. I'm like, honey, do you want to open our holiday party with a tight 10? <laughs> Fuck you, no. If we're at, you know, if we're going on a date night type thing, we're going out somewhere for something, or anytime, it could be around the breakfast table, but he'll say something that will make me laugh really, really hard. Um, and I will say, like, you got to try that on stage. He'll usually always go, no, no, that's not, that doesn't work on stage. That's just meant to be here, the joke I made here. I'm like, honey, trust me, that's a really, that could be a really funny bit. And usually, most of the time, he will come home from a show and go, hey, I tried out that joke on stage. So he will take my advice. He will do it. His mind is Mr. Show. It just spirals out into these you know, parallel scenarios that get worse and more upsetting and crazy. And that's part of the fun of watching him on stage is because you don't know which direction it's going to go in. And it usually will go in a direction that's very surprising. Do you see David now when he does his stand-up? Always. Does he ever look to you and say, like, even unspoken, what did you think? No. <laughs> uh, not really, no. He's never cared. So I think it's neat that he's going to try this. I know he can do it. You could give David a list of words and have him improvise off that list and he'd make 20 minutes of comedy out of it. I wonder if he knows that he can be super funny doing it. What's your name and what do you do? Oh, my name is Bob Odenkirk and I'm a in entertainment. <laughs> it's not true that I never tried at stand-up, but I, I did try uh, for a limited time and I realized sort of pretty quickly and on more than one occasion that it just was not going to happen for me. I There's certain things that a good stand-up can do that I will just never be able to do. That's okay. It's fine. I can do other stuff. But I can do stand-up. It's just extremely erratic and unreliable. And that's just not going to, you're not going to get anywhere being that way. I mean, for me, stand-up is almost like me sitting behind my desk with a bunch of little ideas in front of me shooting the shit with other comedy writers and just tossing ideas out there and then riffing on them a little bit and then moving on to the next. And that's just not professional. It feels uh, unfocused, which it is. And yeah, so I've always done stand up. I would do it next week if there was a gig that seemed like fun uh, because you can write down your little ideas and then you can go up and say them and get some laughs. And it's, a good feeling but it's not stand-up it's not what you know david loved besides for andy coffin who you could argue was not really a stand-up but david loved george carlin he loved real stand-ups um i didn't i mean i liked carlin uh, i loved steve martin and i would argue that he's almost a sketch version of a stand-up comedian do you remember first seeing david stand up yeah it was in it was at the improv in santa monica i had done my show at a theater with andy dick and janine Garofalo was in the audience and she said she had brought david to come see me and then she brought me up the street to see david do stand up and i remember he did what he does he came out with the he had his button his shirt button all the way up right and he had like a strangled voice, you know, really hard to listen to. And he uh, talked like a person who'd had a tracheotomy, told a couple jokes. <laughs> and they were, you know, hard to hear. And the audience kind of is uncomfortable. It's a very funny idea. You know, that's David. I mean, he wants to, he, he loves walking on stage, starting 
with a conceptual sort of bit happening that the audience is unaware of. And then they slowly become aware of it. So I think it's great if he checks in with them and goes, now, what do you guys think? Look, as a stand-up and even in life, uh, before he was famous, when we would go into an elevator, we're somewhere we took trips together and did all kinds of fun shit together when we were younger. And he would be pranking the people around him, the strangers around him. Because, of course, they would be the most gullible because they don't know him and they don't even consider it a performance. They're living life. It can be funny. You can get some laughs from it. You certainly can create tension, which can lead to laughs. But I also feel like to some extent, all you're ever really proving is that, and this goes for Borat too, which I love. All you're ever really proving is that people are polite when they're in a public space and they they kind of go along with whatever the loudest person sort of wants to be uh happening have you ever heard of the stanford prison experiment oh yeah absolutely <laughs> i mean there's an element of that of just like that's what the group is doing i'm gonna do it too so when you tell me he's checking with the audience see what they like and how they what bits worked that's not david that is not david that is true um i think the thing that's different is success you don't have certain hurdles or fears, or you have different hurdles, I should say. And one thing that I that success changed, one thing was I wasn't able to do fake characters. I, I often, early on, do be introduced as one type of person or type of comic. It was a ridiculous kind of surreal thing, and then break out of it and start doing other stuff. And it took me a little while to find my voice. And, and then when I became known, I couldn't trick the audience anymore. So I lost that little bag of tricks. And then you come out and the people have an expectation. They know who you are. And I think it's a natural evolution. When I did uh, Shut Up, You Fucking Baby, you know, I was drinking a lot. And I, was, I, was, uh, I was doing uh, music clubs and I was having a band open for me. And then I would just be up. I'd be drinking throughout the whole set and I would be doing two to three hours up until I had to go to the bathroom. And it was, a, everybody was standing. It was a, kind of a raucous night. It felt much more like a, a rock and roll show kind of thing. And as much as I enjoy it, I can hear so many mistakes when I see things that now I'd go, oh, I should have cleaned that up and I should have edited, you know, I should have made that come. It just nap the process of writing or developing stand up sets. The last two specials I did, I had a different conscientious approach to developing the material. I, I, didn't, I stopped drinking during the day. I would only drink at the very end when I was doing the encore and I'd start to crack a beer and whatever. And I edited the material and I, they're tighter sets. They have a theme to them. They have a, they have a flow to them that the other sets didn't have. I know that there's a lot of people who prefer that other, <laughs> that other stuff, but it became more important to me to connect with the audience in that way. And um, it just became more important and it became something I wanted to get better at. How does David do with criticism? He'll look at it and he'll own it if it's true. And if he, you know, totally disagrees with it, then for the most part, it will roll off of him. Uh, my name is Wendy Cross. I am David's sister. It's still, I mean, I think that, you know, there are things that still sting a little bit. Um, he likes to play off that he's maybe a little bit thicker skinned than, you know, he probably is. But 
I, you know, I think he, he generally, you know, has, has learned how to, and he talks about how sometimes he'll get these rave reviews. And at the same time, he's got to go, all right, well, you know, that's nice, but you know, it's one person's opinion. Has he ever asked you about his act? Like, what did you think? Never. Oh my God, never. And you know, what's funny. I don't never like never, ever, 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 ever would he say, how was that? Was it good? Did it come off? You know, were people laughing? You know, I couldn't tell, you know, (laughs) never, not one time in my ever. You were a little unclear with your answer. Did, um... <laughs> never, 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 <laughs> nuker, nuker, <laughs> never. Yeah, yeah. Nine. Um, yeah, yeah. So for several reasons, I think he doesn't want to know. I think he maybe doesn't care and, and that it doesn't matter. I don't know. That, that's, yeah, never, never, never. Would you ever dare lowercase d offer up a criticism? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've, if it's something that is really outstanding, um, or if it's something that I feel like that I knew something that he worked really hard on, or okay, I'll give you an example. His his movie, and I've never I've never discussed this with him, so <laughs> I don't, his movie hits. Um, I did not like it. I thought it was pretty terrible. And I never said anything to him because why, I mean, why would I, I I mean, that would just be mean. And I don't know if he thought it was great or if he thought it, you know, was not great. But so I've learned now that like, I I will comment on the stuff that is, I I won't tell him if it's bad. I mean, why do that? It just doesn't, what's the point of that? But if something is really great or I've, you know, there's something that I just, you know, see, you know, something else that he's brought to a role that, you know, I've never seen before. And, you know, then it's, it's exciting to me and I want to let him know. And I think that that means some, I think it means more that I don't comment on everything, you know? Um, There's always these classic moments in a comedian's life where your family becomes part of the storytelling of the act. How do you react to that stuff now? My sister's made it in a couple of times, it's almost impossible not to. And then there was a like a totally farce, like it was a it was an absolutely made up joke about you know a Thanksgiving that he learned something that he never knew, which was that my mother could take a punch. <laughs> so, um, you know, who's my mother's eighty two years old? So it's you know that you know obviously totally totally made up. But um, for the most part, you know, I don't think I have ever been in any of his bits. He talks about my dad, uh, and that's, you know, <laughs> fuck it. That's awesome. You know, go for it uh, as much as you, as you want, you know. Do you think David really wants feedback? Well, yes and no. I think that would be fair to say of anyone. They do and they don't, really, no matter what their vocation. They don't really want it unless it's going to go their way. Uh, <laughs> you don't really want, want somebody to say, oh, that, that was terrible. Or, man... Oof. Feedback is good if it's coming from someone you respect and if it, it is truly constructive. But it, to just have general feedback from somebody who may or may not understand fully what you're doing or has no sense of humor or whatever it is, you know, be careful what you seek out. David has a different take on that than I do, obviously. You know what I mean? Like, I, I have no social media platforms. I have very few specials. You were on SNL, which is kind of <laughs> a piranha's buffet. <laughs> oh, my God. I was, it's just some people will thrive there and some people will not. And also it depends on the cast and who the head writer is. 
some people get real your great seasons, your good seasons, and your horrible seasons. And it and timing is everything. And uh, if it's a good fit, it's a good fit. If not, and also you have to have the right kind of personality. You have to be very, very comfortable in your own skin, very smart and strong, like Amy Poehler, Tina Fey, and Molly Shannon. They don't get bogged down in inferiority complexes or who's who's getting more than me, who's talking about me, whatever. I unfortunately, or especially at the time, I did care a great deal who liked me, who didn't like me. It destroyed me. And also I had a, a drinking problem. Uh, you know, I, I drank way too much. I squandered my time in SNL, but it was also the wrong time for me. My writing, uh, you know, I don't care that my stuff didn't get on. There was no loss there. But it was unfortunate because it would have been great to do well there and it would have been fun. But I ruined it. It is what it is, you know, but I'm always happy when people do well there. Your candor and your strength is really disarming. Oh, my God, really? I, you're giving me too much credit. You're giving me way too much credit. Come on. No, you come on. How dare you? Janine is really singular. I like to call her my fashion icon. She really <laughs> is. But I think she's a lot of people. My name is Sarah Silverman, and I'm a, a comedian. Do you like feedback? Love. Wow. Yeah, because I could take it or not. I mean, I don't have, you know, I mean, if someone gives me a, a tag, I mean, like, I never expect anyone to watch me, you know, of my friends and comics. I mean, I have a friend, Beth Stelling, who's brilliant comic and writer and she'll always watch and afterwards be like hey you know take it or leave it but this 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 and i'll be like oh my god thank you you know you never know where like the sklar brothers gave me like one years ago an incredible tag i mean like you know you just do what you never know where it's going to come from but i mean i'm not you know i write my own material i'm a writer but i why i don't know why i wouldn't take a brilliant tag from someone who's offering it to me or like get the pride of giving someone a good tag, you know? I've never heard it called a tag, which I love. Yeah, it's that, it's the like a uh, little joke after the joke, the little, you know, aftershock after a joke. You've actually taken feedback in kind of historically beautiful ways. Why? What the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> um, I, I suppose like after Jesus's magic, I could have read that A.O. Scott review and just fucking hated him, you know, but it was more painful and more fruitful than that. I understood what he said and it kind of blew my mind in a creative way. Like I, I agreed with him and, and it made me, it, it gave me kind of new interests and new marching orders and new, just a new perspective. Sometimes what happens if we don't really, if we're not open and feel okay about ourselves, come from a place of feeling okay about ourselves. I see this happen all around, especially in politics today, and um, criticism can make someone feel ashamed, and then they take that shame and they, they're they unwilling to look inward, so that shame processes into outward rage, you know? So it's practice. Well, I think that's very true. <laughs> I, I think that that, you know, that, that that's, that's an insight into how, human psychology works um, and to absorb the feedback and um, to come out the other side of it and act on it uh, requires going through those things. You know, I mean, I, I have this every, every day or every week with, with editors, you know, um, I'll send in a piece and there will be feedback or they'll say, you know, this, this didn't make sense and you need to cut this or you need to fix this or you need to rewrite this. And then I'll be, you know, horribly embarrassed and rage and resentment. How dare they 
Then I do the revisions and the piece is better. What is your name and what do you do? I'm A.O. Scott. Uh, you can call me Tony. Um, I'm the one of the chief film critics at the New York Times, um, a job I've had uh, now for more than 20 years. Congratulations. <laughs> R- right? <laughs> yeah. Writers all love praise, so you you know, it's, uh, it's a good move always. <laughs> Define the word criticism. Criticism is the process of thinking about, um, arguing about, evaluating, judging, comparing any human activity. <laughs> As a species, uh, we subject to criticism. You know, a picture, a plate of food, a movie, a book, and we think, well, you know, did I like that? Was that good? Was that, what was that about? What did it mean? You can have an opinion or you can like something, but that isn't quite criticism. You know, if I just say, this is a great movie or I hated that, that isn't criticism. Um, criticism starts when someone says, well, why? Why did you like it? Why did you hate it? What was good about it? Um, what was not good about it? And if I'm trying to formulate a, a defense of my opinion or, or, or point of view or persuade you of it or just explain myself, that's when criticism starts. So in that sense, argument is, is important. November 11th, 2005, you wrote a review of Sarah Silverman's film, Jesus is Magic, in the New York Times. And again, you know, these things vary, but it was critical. I mean, you were a critic, but it was kind of clinically critical of her film. Tell me about that review. What do you remember about writing it? In that review, I was very much trying to work out a problem in my own head, you know, because I, 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 I really... I had admired and and did admire um, Sarah's comedy, and I thought she was she was really smart and really interesting. And I was really looking forward to the movie. You know, the the movie was sort of high on my list of things I wanted to see, and I thought a lot of it was really funny, and a lot of the jokes landed. But the more I thought about it, and as I was writing about it, there was something that bothered me. It's like there's something here that is just that feels like a problem that is getting in the way of me just being able to like embrace and celebrate and support this. And so I wrote the review in a way, trying to figure out what that was and trying to figure out it in a way that wasn't just dismissive or putting her down or, or shaming her in a way or saying, you know, this is offensive. This is wrong. This is inappropriate um, because I don't really like that kind of um, language. So I was just trying to think like, what is the problem here? What is the kind of ethical queasiness that I'm, that I'm feeling around this? But I think one of the things that makes comedy so interesting to think about and to write about is how they are working with artificial uh or embellished or crafted or other or you know they're 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 performing they're not just going up there being themselves they are turning their own experiences and points of view into um an act it's called an act so there they must there must be some acting and how tricky it can be to sustain and to make clear and to use that sort of unreliability. So when you're seeing Sarah Silverman in in Jesus's Magic, it's like, well, is it her? Is it not her? At what point? Where do the quotation marks come in, and where do they come off? Um, what's the nature of the unreliability? Is she playing a character? Who is the character? And I just wanted to express that clearly, without really, you know, thinking that um, it would make a difference. Uh, one way or the other, um, if she would even read it. A lot of people, you know, are very proud to say they never read reviews, and that's and that's fine. Oh, I, that's interesting. I think that can be almost frustrating or um, just hard to process for people. And I think that stuff could maybe make you crazy in ways, you know. Certainly, it it 
has to do with me, but also has nothing to do with me. You know what I mean? You know, I remember years ago, Larry Charles, we wrote two pilots together that never got made. And we would get notes and sometimes I'd go, they fucking, are you fucking kidding? They don't get it, you know, whatever. And he goes, it doesn't matter. The spirit of the note is what you try to decipher because if they're saying something, it, it's, there is something, but they might not know the words or, or know what it is exactly, but that they're expressing. But also that I find myself, I'm very good at um, like a positive version of disassociation because <laughs> a great writer, especially a critic, you know, of all kinds, if they can change your perspective by only one degree, the whole world looks different still, you know? Sounds like A.O. Scott's review changed you in a great way. Yeah, it changed me, but a lot of things change me. I mean, I, I'm, I have to say I'm extraordinarily moved by that. And I never think when I'm writing um, a review, this, this will have some effect. This will influence the person whose work I'm writing about to do their work differently. I just don't think about that. So when, when I heard, when it kind of got back to me in various ways, she, she came back to it. I thought this is really something. This is really for her to respond to it that way. And also just to say it publicly shows just remarkable seriousness and, and integrity on her part. Um, and I don't say that just because like she agreed with me, but just because I, I think the relation between artists and, and critics often is uh, antagonistic. And even if they accept some of your criticism, tend to be um, defensive about it or to protect themselves um, from it. So the fact that she really thought about what I was saying and took it in the spirit that I intended it. I, I just find, you know, moving is the word I keep coming back to, but it is really, uh, it's an extraordinary thing. Limits are a gift to comedy because it forces you to figure out something even better within those boundaries. I mean, I think that almost the enemy of comedy, though we always fight for it, is that blue sky, you know, of just like anything, do anything. In terms of what David's doing, I think it's fascinating because here is an audience he wants to make laugh, but maybe not at any cost, you know, especially because when you do stand up, just like any art and stand ups never want to call themselves artists because it's too hoity toity. But just in a technical way, you know, that you're putting something out there and then it kind of can't be yours anymore. You can't control how people infer it the way that they take it in has to do with their own lives, their own experience, the the moment in time, the climate in time. It's not in a vacuum. You're not doing it in your bathroom mirror. So now maybe it's a chance that David gets to see what he's putting out, see what's happening to it when it hits the air, you know. In a world filled with social media where we're constantly hearing other people's opinions, like it might not be so bad to hear what what they have to say or like that's what stand-up is it's every time you do stand-up the audience tells you with a reaction what they respond to where the laughs are what's working and what isn't working and then you decide if you know if you go well they were wrong about this <laughs> you know and you keep trying it and then a pattern forms that becomes maybe undeniable <laughs> you know and you have to drop stuff or you have to change stuff or you know something funny but it won't work in it the, the thing that makes it work is just something that you say accidentally or it's a breath or it's an article a tiny word or you know what i mean so it's it's all constant you know as we're seeing now it's stand-up is fairly impossible uh 
without an audience, you know, and I'm really trying to figure out how to do that and how to try that, you know, but the audience is your pacing, you know, like it's just, they're not there. Before we leave feedback, I think it's important to rewrite the definition. Feedback is not necessarily hurtful or caustic or diminishing. Compliments are also feedback, and some of us are really shit at taking those. So, whatever the intent, I think feedback gets us in touch with something about ourselves that we might already believe or suspect or are kind of curious about. So its usefulness varies. David Cross found a use... Uh, But this time, no cloaks, no daggers, no personas, no crashing thimbles, and no cool theme music either, which kind of sucks, by the way, but oh well. It's just one basement, one act, a hundred people. What could possibly go wrong? Nothing. I just wanted to say that. Sounds cool. On the final part of this season's assembly, what does go on in your mind when you're on stage? Your mind. You know, it's... it's. Excuse me, are, are you here to see David Cross? No? Okay. That's good. Who is David Cross? He is an amazing comedian. He was on um, one of my favorite shows, which I'm blanking on, with um, Jason Bateman, and um, pronouns are like the worst for me. Uh, we're here to see David Cross. We were big Arrested Development fans. Have not followed... David's career significantly outside of that. Excited to see what he's got going. Please welcome your host for the evening, David Croft. Uh, so yeah, how, how's how's everybody doing this Friday night in Brooklyn? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Is there any, uh, anybody have any questions? Assembly is created and produced by me, Robert Malazzo. Original music for this season is by Fred Armisen. The Assembly theme is by A&R. Visit our website, theassemblypodcast.com. Send any questions, comments you have. You can also suggest an assembly you'd like me to feature on the show. And of course, you can contribute there. Your contributions are incredibly appreciated. I promise. Assembly is a presentation of the Modern School of Film. Consequence Podcast Network.